Hello and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, back finally after my brush with the horrible monsters that have swallowed and threatened to destroy me. And uh, thank you, Teos, uh, for for keeping the ship afloat uh, as I struggled. Oh, yeah. It was nice to have Mario on. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, Mario did a wonderful job, and uh, I hope everyone enjoyed that. But now you're stuck with us again. Woo! Back to the old grind. So uh, <laughs> with, with that said... It's a world of pain. That's right. That's right. You Now you're in for it. So let's jump right in. Let's talk some news. Uh, the big news that has come out recently isn't an official announcement, but it's sort of some sleuthing that was done. And it was learned that Wizards of the Coast has trademarked a, a registered a new trademark for the term Atomic Arcade. And so they have to file this, uh, you know, in order to get that trademark. And it describes this new service as entertainment services, namely providing online computer games and interactive multiplayer online computer games via a global network, as well as fantasy role-playing games, board games, trading card games, and collectible toy figures, and downloadable electronic games to be used in connection with computers, console gaming devices, and wireless devices. So... Why are there three different definitions? <laughs> so my understanding was that they had to file separately. I don't know if it's the application of it or something. So they needed sort of three different definitions for each of the filings they were doing. So this this Atomic Arcade is a trademark that's used in these three different ways, I guess is sort of what I understand. Okay. And as as they are written, it doesn't really tell us a heck of a lot. No. Um, and which is you know, interesting in that it leads to a lot of speculation. Yeah. You know, my first thought was, okay, this is going to be a steam like thing where you can buy wizards, computer games uh, and, you know, host right. them on, on your PC. Uh, but then they also talk about gaming consoles and wireless devices. And then they get into like collectible toy figures. So it's like, okay, uh, <laughs> what, what does, what does that, have to do with online interactive multiplayer role-playing games or computer games. So there's a lot of speculation that goes, you know, it's going from this is their, this is their, you know, online tabletop answer to Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds and, and uh, you know, all, Shard and all those. And, uh, and then some people are just like, yeah, we don't know what it is. And maybe they don't even know what it is at this point. I thought it was going to be when I when I saw it first that that name I thought oh this is probably like some Avalon Hill thing to do like board games online and mm-hmm. they certainly mentioned board games but then they mentioned fantasy role playing games and all these other pieces and and who knows I mean it could be kind of anything uh that could be in this space but uh but we'll see we'll see yeah. where this goes right Yeah and it's interesting that it's called Atomic Ar- Atomic Arcade because that doesn't really have a sort of D&D fantasy theme to it it is very much a general sort of you know one size fits all sort of name that uh yeah or even on the computer game right right even like arcade is sort of a dated term right we don't really have arcades in the sense that we had back in the like the 80s and 90s uh 
and even atomic is sort of a, a dated <laughs> yeah. a dated term right we don't talk about atomic uh anything anymore that was unless the, you're watching dune exactly House that Atomics. that was yeah that was the 50s term for for thing all things nuclear yeah. uh so it's just it's it's kind of strange and uh we'll we'll see what happens with it as as we go mm-hmm uh, next in the news, we have D&D products in Spanish now available on Amazon or at your friendly local gaming store. So do you want to catch us up on what this means? Yeah. So friend of the show, Mike Ballas on Twitter it was sharing information because he's been really following the distribution of Spanish language D&D products and working with these various codes. And so the, the way this is panning out is uh you know wizards redid its distribution taking the ownership of some languages in-house instead of working through third parties that were working through gale force 9. now it's wizards so wizards is doing spanish and wizards is doing german and several other languages japanese others and they will try to now distribute the books much as they do with english language books which means that they should arrive at your equivalent of a barnes and noble and be on your Amazon and all those kinds of things. But it's been a little bit rocky and, and there's some sleuthing that has to happen to figure out what's going on. So one thing you can do is there are codes, which you'll find in our in our show notes for the Spanish version ones. I, I don't know where you find the ones for uh, other languages. In fact, I don't even know where Mike got these from, but, but yeah. these codes will get you the player's handbook, monster manual, DMG or essentials kit in Spanish if you give them to a bookstore or a gaming store. Hmm. I tried this out. I went to my local gaming store and I said, hey, I want to order these, here are these codes. And they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, we can order this. So that's what you can now do. Uh, similarly, these start showing up in the Spanish section on Amazon. Um, so there's a link in our show notes to the essentials kit, which you can now get in Spanish. But it's still a little perilous. Like if you do a search for some of these products, it it might say... The page might be in Spanish, but it might say, like one of them said, we don't guarantee this book is in Spanish. <laughs> so that was really fascinating. Okay. And then the other one was just, you know, the page is translated, but it's the English product. So I couldn't find the Monster Manual or Player's Handbook or DMG assured. But the Essentials Kit, that appeared there in Spanish. So it's happening over time. And, and you know, be careful if you're searching. But if you, they, probably the easiest thing is to take these codes that are in our show notes give them to your store and this should work whether you are in mexico or wherever you might be in the u.s you should be able to get a spanish language version of those interesting i it's also interesting that and maybe there are more books that they're uh or products that they're translating but they went with the essentials kit and not with the starter set yeah it is which, interesting which maybe says something about what they think is a better introduction yeah, that is interesting. Um, and they are, you know, meanwhile, uh, announcing distribution uh, time periods. In fact, something I meant to add to our show notes, but I did not, was that uh, Wizards announced a change in plan. Let's see if I can find it for um, for when they're distributing uh, Strixhaven. Okay. It's been yeah. it's been delayed. Yep. Um, and it's now December seventh. And they also, in the same tweet, had the dates. Uh, yeah, here it is. So, so North America is December 7th. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, December 10th. Europe, Middle East, Africa is December 14th. 
and then uh, in Asia Pacific region, December 16th. So they're trying to roll these out all together. And I, I believe that Europe is also the Spanish language versions. Hmm. Not 100%, but I believe that. that that's what, they, what they've been saying is we're trying to distribute everything globally more or less on the same time frame. And so you can see that here where, you know, basically in the span of two and a half weeks, the world gets Strixhaven. And that's in today's bizarre global shipping world, right? So, right. which is why it's delayed in the first place everywhere. But, yeah. but that's the idea is they're trying to get to where they'll come out everywhere at the same time. That, that's very interesting. And that takes a lot more resources, especially if you're delivering them translated. Because, I mean, we know from experience the t very tight schedules that these things sometimes run on. So to have the finished version ready to hand over to a translator, you would almost have to think that it's going over piecemeal and, and, you know, that integration has got to be pretty close to get that. Uh, unless you're just delaying the publication of the entire product until the translation is ready. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question how they're doing that, right? That yeah. One assumes they're taking those files as they're being sort of laid out or something, you know, like at some point where you've got enough of the layout done that you feel good, but before you're actually shipping and you're getting yeah. that to your translator, because yeah. it has to probably go through its own layout, right, to, to be yeah. configured. It, you may find you go over a page or under a page when you think of languages like German, right, long yeah. words. Yeah. All you need to do is look, take one of those uh, household electronics and look at the different in size yep. of all that text <laughs> when it's translated in six languages. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So that is out there for, uh, you know, English, uh, Spanish language players and DMs for you to uh, take a look at starting December 14th, according to Amazon. We got a new Roll20 or report for quarter three of this year. And it is always interesting to see the play breakdown for all the games played on Roll20, which is what the or group uh, does in this report. It involves any game that uses a themed character sheet. So that's how they track uh, how the games mm -hmm. are played. And not, no surprise, D&D continues to be the majority of the games played D and D fifth edition. That is, uh, so 53% is the D and D games being played about 20% of games are not categorized of uh, call of Cthulhu. That was up well above all the other secondary games has dropped 5% down to about 12%. Uh, but Pathfinder and Pathfinder two also dropped. Pathfinder down to 3.2 and Pathfinder 2 down to 1.4, which Oof. is, yeah. Um, yeah, and there are folks saying that, well, you know, a lot of Pathfinder plays on fantasy grounds and things like that. But I mean, ooh, I mean, this is the kind of system yeah. you would want to use for Pathfinder. So it, it is it is pretty startling. Right. I mean, you can you can take every single number here and you can justify it should be higher or it should be lower to the real thing, but you can't argue with the fact that it's dropped. Right. Again, because that's the same players. Uh, yeah, yeah. The same audience is doing it. So a uh, world of darkness is at right about 1%. Uh, D and D 3.5 is still kind of going strong at about 0.8% where Starfinder is at about 0.6%. Yeah. And uh, what 
what what's this tormenta yeah so this is something that's been growing a fair bit these games that are not on most u.s people's radar screens that have been showing some growth and roll 20 has been focusing on them um and in this case star wars had been on that sort of large breakout list uh but now it is off the list and on the list is tormenta which at 0.6 percent you know doesn't seem like a lot but that's the same amount as starfinder mm-hmm. and this is a brazilian fantasy role-playing game that it, that i think it grew something like 40 percent this quarter wow so it, it's showing great growth and it just shows you know there are only so many people in brazil but that's a massive amount of play right and it's up there with that news that we heard um now i think two or three years ago where they said that you know roll 20 servers were crashing because of all the people playing in italy mm-hmm. and that's with you know no and this is playing D and right. and this was without a translated D and D player's handbook at the time right so right. i mean it's just the the ability to tap into these markets i think is a big part of the story again for this mm-hmm. third quarter here that that while 0.6% doesn't seem huge, it's very huge when you compare this to, say, Star Wars or right. you name it. The, any of the games we haven't mentioned yet, mm-hmm. to have this Brazilian RPG be bigger than those is impressive. Yeah. And it does speak to you know, the population of the world and what percentage of them are playing RPGs. And it seems like Brazil has always been a hotbed for role-playing yeah. games. Uh, you know, regardless of, of population, it, you know, percentage wise, I think it has a huge percentage of its population that takes part in, in role-playing games. Yeah. And I'd be curious to whether Tormenta is something that people are uh, purchasing on Roll20 or not. You know, one of the things that, that uh, often happens, I know this from my days in Columbia, is that we may not be paying customers, but we're playing a lot. There's a lot of this sort of sharing or photocopying or whatever. Um, because, because the, the things are so incredibly inaccessible that like mm-hmm. the, the, t- the price of a, of a D and D book could be get on a plane, go to the United States. Right. I mean, it's just, right. it's thousands of dollars. So it's so unreal that photocopying just becomes the way everybody deals with it. Sure. Uh, or you have one set of books that everybody, you know, in your group at school is using. And so growing that market, part of the, the trick is convincing people to pay. Mm-hmm. And we know we have the numbers. That's what this shows and, and, and other such events have shown. And so the question is, well, how do we create that market? And if I were at any RPG company, I would be asking this question because somehow Tormenta is this huge game in Brazil. Why not insert the name of your game, right? Mm-hmm. How do you get that to happen? There's yeah. got to be a way. Yep. <laughs> so we'll keep an eye on the Or report going forward. Uh, Big news in Hasbro Wizards of the Coast board games is that HeroQuest, which did a crowdfunding campaign that made over $3 million, has shipped and is now going to be available in a retail version. So you know this as well as anyone, Teos, because you worked on (laughs) uh, the game and you have your very own copy of the game already. It arrived and it was really awesome to to be part of HeroQuest is... is fantastic i can't even believe it uh, and i played my first game with the uh with the new set which was really neat to do um and the retail version looks like it'll be the base set at least for now um but th- but that's good it's not cheap it's it's i think more expensive than it was when it was crowdsourced I, i'm not entirely sure i think it's like 125 to get the set yeah um you can get it on the hasbropulse.com site which is interesting that they are selling it through there 
or I know GameStop was one of the links they shared, but it should be available, you know, in a number of places. Uh, a lot of people have been wondering whether this game would even be available. Like I've received a number of requests, like, how do I get this? And I'm like, I'm sorry, but it looks like <laughs> now the answer is I'm not sorry. It's available. You can get it. Um, and, and we'll see whether they do expansion sets or not, because those are things that, you know, were part of the, the crowd funding campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, what they did also share is this, there's a app that you can get for free on the Google and Apple stores. And it does some pretty neat things. It'll play the role of the DM, which is called Zargon and HeroQuest. And will even handle players such that you can, you can play with just four people. Normally you need four plus a DM or even fewer. You could be one person and you tell the app that you are playing this many players and it'll handle all of that. Um, and and it doesn't replace the game completely. You're still doing things like drawing cards and, and, and moving, but it but it tracks things and helps you through that process and does the sort of monster controlled uh, aspect of things. You can even pause and store the, and save the game so you can play through some of it and go back. Uh, the app is in English, German, Italian, Spanish, and French. So more indication of how Hasbro and Wizards and, you know, they're all trying to target that. So pretty neat. We've got a link in the show notes if you're curious. Yep. It is $125 at the Pulse site because I looked at it and I did not pull the trigger on buying it, although I'm strongly <laughs> considering it. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't see a release date. Uh, so it's, it's, it's pre-order at this point, according to the yeah. site. And I didn't see anywhere where it said this will ship on what day. So Yeah, it's a good question. I know that for backers, the mythic backers are receiving theirs now, which are the people who ordered everything. And the ones that backed at, I think, the hero level, it was called, which was the base set, have not received theirs yet. So I would imagine that they're going to have to go through some, you know, I think all that shipping type issue. They they have to get through all the crowdsource stuff and then they'll work with it. So they don't have a date yet. Yep, that would be the case. I'm clicking on the link here one more time just to see this pre-order item will will be available to ship on December 15th, 2021. So not, not that long. Uh, But you know, for $125, you are getting definitely a box of goodies. Um, And I'm going to see how well it compares to a game that's similar like Gloomhaven Mm -hmm. um, to see how, because Gloomhaven also has the app that will, sort of take over yep. the, sure. the DM. Well, there's no DM in Gloomhaven, but, you know, take over the sort of AI role. Turn uh, management and things yep, like that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it'll be interesting to compare the two maybe at some point. Yeah. It's fun. And, I, I you know, having, because I have the box set and I can look at the box set versus the add-ons, it's a lot. I can see why it's not a cheap game. Um, it's still big price, but I can see why. There are a lot of minis and 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 uh, and nice quality components. So mm-hmm. I get it. Yep. Uh, and D&D play in media, we have D&D showing up in another CBS sitcom. Uh, the Big Bang Theory sort of made several attempts at showing the, the characters playing D&D. And now a new uh, series that they have, a sitcom called Ghosts, is going to be using D&D in an upcoming episode. And I don't really watch TV. I don't really watch sitcoms. But I happened, as I was watching a football game, to catch the the uh, ad for 
ghosts and seeing that D&D was being played in the episode. And they are sitting at a table. That promo. Did it look good? It looked interesting. Uh, The ghosts. Now, I haven't watched this show. And I when I first saw that what it was, I'm like, this is either going to be really, really funny or just absolutely horrid. Uh Uh, And I, I haven't watched the show, so I don't know. But apparently there are a bunch of ghosts in this house. And for some reason, I think they can't, some of them can't talk to each other. So the, the, the mortal person in the house has to sort of translate <laughs> during this D and D game. That's, that wow. was my, that was my, so, and she didn't look very interested in the game, <laughs> uh, at least, you know, in the 32nd spot that, uh-huh. that I saw. So, you know, she is obviously, then they show everyone sitting around the table with, you know, the maps and the minis and everything on uh-huh. the table. And it looks like she is going to have to sort of go, be the go-between. Well, I will have to watch this. I mean, that, that's yeah. just, it's required just to see what, yeah. how the representation comes across. I'm always curious. Yeah. And that episode will be dropping this Thursday. So normally our episodes drop on Thursday. And uh, this episode of Ghosts will also be... Uh, premiering thursday so hopefully you will hear this and then you will run to your television set on thursday night to watch this episode and see how D is portrayed Woo. Uh, we have new news from demiplane uh we reported before that demiplane and paizo were teaming up to create a nexus for uh pathfinder to give the digital tools character builders and so on Um, Demiplane recently announced another Nexus. This one for the World of Darkness role-playing game would be coming in 2022. So another game, another role-playing game, getting the D&D Beyond treatment is what Mm -hmm. this looks like. Yeah, it sure does. And I mean, it's a smart move by Adam Bradford and Demiplane. They are, you know, a platform where you can go and play games and sort of set up uh, whatever your game is and what are your, whatever your virtual tabletop is, this can kind of connect players and DMs. So also providing digital tools makes it an even stronger case, right? And so if you have all your Pathfinder people there, you're going to have all your World of Darkness people there. Who knows what else will join the Demiplane fold? I won't be shocked if we see some other names come out. It would definitely not shock me as well. Mm-hmm. Uh And in convention news, we now have dates for PAX East. PAX East will be returning on April 21st through 24th of 2022. Um, You will be required to be vaccinated uh, and approved masks must be worn at all times. You can go to east.paxsite.com for more information on that. So we know that PAX Unplugged is happening. And they are continuing that trend now with PAX East. Yeah. Uh, any other news or excitements, joys or concerns that you would like to uh, shout out before we get to our main topic? I'm going to keep my concerns to myself, Sean. Uh, all right. <laughs> we, will, we will get to some concerns as we discuss FizzBand. Grievances. Yes, airing of grievances. grievances. I have a lot of problems with you people. Uh, with FizzBand's Treasury of Dragons. So we were going to cover Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which yeah. was the main adventure released for 5e this year. And we probably or may still go back and do that. Uh, one of the reasons we're not is because 
from what I've read from the adventure so far, it does a pretty good job of doing everything that we would normally sit down and talk about, you know, yeah. how, how to run this game, pitfalls to be aware of, you know, things like that. Uh, the adventure is, is pretty solid in and of itself. Uh, so we could sit here and say, yeah, this is great. This is great. This is great. <laughs> but that's bad radio. Uh, you know, we need to, we need to rail against something. <laughs> so we're we're turning over and uh yeah. we're going to cover Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons. Not that uh not that we have a lot of negative things to say, no. but but it's it's an interesting book in a lot of ways, both with the content it has as well as its sort of place in D&D history uh as we always get a like dragon book it seems. And yeah. this is fifth edition's dragon book so you know we can also talk about how it fits into that sort of paradigm of release schedules and the place of dragons uh and dragon lore in the game yeah yeah this is a book that i think would have come out either around here or maybe a year earlier and sort of relative to the uh lifespan of an edition right this is sort of the place where it tends to come out where a draconomicon will sort of revitalize your line a little bit by by adding uh some juice to these fearsome creatures and and reinvigorating dms with new ideas around their layers and the lore and it, it's it's a great subject right i think these books have always been well received because they have such neat characteristics to them I mean, the game is called Dungeons and Dragons, not Dungeons and Kobolds or Dungeons <laughs> and Giants. So yeah. when when they pull out the Dragon Book, it, there's usually a good reason to do so, whether it be yeah. business wise or you know just revitalizing people's interest in the game. So let's take a take a glance at the book, and we may not get through the entire book uh, in one sitting. And if we don't, we will come back and talk about. Uh, talk about it in future episodes. So you want to lead us through the table of contents, Mr. Abadia? Yeah, there are basically six chapters and an intro. The intro is called Elegy for the First World, which sets the stage lore-wise. Then we have character creation, which involves draconic races, uh, monk and ranger subclass draconic-themed feats. The chapter two is dragon magic. These are spells, magic items, which include horde magic items. And Draconic Gifts, which are sort of those like blessing type uh, rewards that you can get that we've seen in, in previous books. Then chapter three, Dragons in Play, how to roleplay your dragons, dragon followers, dragon encounters and adventures and campaigns. Chapter four is Layers and Hordes, which involves both those things. Chapter five, Draconomicon, which breaks down each type of dragon, gives you personality tables, layer types and so on. And then it ends with the bestiary, which has gem dragons. Those are your psionic dragons. Some other new dragons, draconians from the Dragonlance setting, great worms, the oldest dragons of all, and other such things. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I noticed, uh, just looking at the table of contents, was how they got to the player-facing content as quickly as they could. You know, the introduction says, oh, dragons are great foes, and... And you can have a great time, and we're going to talk all about slaying dragons and ways to kill dragons and dragon this and dragon that, all about like dragons as monsters, dragons as the story that 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 you're telling. And then they just 
lay out all of the player facing you play the play a dragon use dragon spells here's dragon magic items uh, yeah every everything player facing which i thought, I thought was, that that was interesting because yeah. like while they often have subclasses and things like that up front spells and magic almost always go towards the back and yep. and that is interesting that change yeah so the intro as teo said is called elegy for the first world and it starts right away with this very long uh very interesting mythic poem which sets the stage for the book and it's sort of a highlight of the new lore um the core lore of D that they are presenting in this book and yeah, i i i'm I'm, worth... a, I'm a poetry fan uh so yeah. you know it was it was cool uh and, and, and I, this is like someone poured essence of James Wyatt onto the yeah. page, right? I mean, oh, yeah. this, he's one of the authors uh, of several Draconomicons, and he worked on this. He was the lead, and and uh, this is just totally him, right? Yep i I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> uh, so after you read the poem, which sort of gives a poetic version of the this new mythology that they're creating, they give they spell out the actual lore which is that Bahamut and Tiamat were creators of the first world. And they created this first world, essentially. And they also gave rise to Sardior, who is the ruby red dragon, the sort of gem dragon uh, patron. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and then, then things start to happen. But it all starts with the dragons. Uh, and... And, and one interesting thing is the outsiders arrive, which is these war-bringing gods and their followers yep. sort of arrive from elsewhere, which I guess is the idea of sort of the, the other planes, the, the celestial-type planes and demonic planes and so on. They, they then arrive from the outer planes to the first world and want it as a home. Yeah, and so so then the the dragons are defeated. Bahamut falls. Sardiar hides. Tiamat is entombed, uh, and so the gods and the people take over, spread out, become elves, dwarves, etc. Uh, Bahamut uh, strives to to make peace with them, to understand them, uh, and then is welcomed into the celestial planes from this first world. Tiamat, on the other hand, rallies her, you know, her brood and seeks vengeance. The first world is then shattered into all of the worlds that we are um, familiar with. And as Teos notes in our show notes, the word sundering is used. <laughs> and, and Sardior is also sundered, um, becoming his consciousness being spread out in the form of gems everywhere, being the gem dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm going to let you go first on, on reactions because <laughs> I know I have a strong reaction. Yeah, well, I, I had a number of strong reactions to all of this. And on one hand, I mean, this is just a myth, right? And it's a fun myth. And this myth can coincide. If we think of it as just a myth, it coincides with other tales that have been told before uh, it, it both rubs them the wrong way and fits into various lore pieces. So even if we look at Forgotten Realms, which has its myth, um, 
you know, th there are always, there have always been holes in the various myths that have said, well, but these people say otherwise. And so this is one of these otherwise kind of things. Um, but it's also presented here in, I think, a far more deliberate way than other books have tried to do with their creation story. If you take the fourth edition Dawn War or third edition books, if you take a Forgotten Realms book, a lot of times that's sort of a backstory that's somewhere and it's not sort of made as core. Here, we don't only get this pretty poem, but we then get the explanation of the poem and then we get mechanics and other things to feed off of this, which makes it seem way more deliberate to me than anything else. And this idea that really dragons come first and they, they are the creators, the original creators of, of the material plane, basically, and therefore of all material plane components, all worlds on it. Um, that's fascinating because it feels to me <laughs> like branding. <laughs> yeah. Right. Someone said it's Dungeons and Dragons. Let's get us some dragons. And in fact, let's get us a multiverse so we can weave all our worlds together. Dragons will be the key to that multiverse because right. they are the the stuff of the material plane. They'll be the common through myth that will explain everything. So we're just going to do this. And, and whatever past history existed, this will sort of override it. Right. And it, as you say, as a story, it's really cool and fun and makes sense and makes sense enough that you can fit it into different, different worlds that we already have to make it the story is always difficult. Um, the more specific that you try to get with your backstory and with your creation myths in any fiction or in any real world religion mythology, the, the harder it is to then use it. Uh, the harder it is to make it fit with reality. Yeah. And, and our reality as players and as DMs are our games. Right. And in when you're trying to tell your own story, whether you're telling it in your own world or in a published world, the backstory is often more baggage than it is helpful. And so I didn't want to see in the beginning, <laughs> and this is how it is, because then it, it becomes a hurdle that you have to get over or around or under or through than it is a, a tool that's useful when you're sitting down with your five friends trying to tell the story that you want to tell with those characters and mm -hmm. the NPCs that you have uh, to play with. That's a great point. I, I had not thought of it to that exact level, which, which is good. That, that's, that's a neat perspective. And I, and I think really accurate. It's also that when we add myth that contradicts other myth, it, it, what it does is it erodes that verisimilitude of the game because now it's, it's tearing at the foundation you may have had in your mind as a player, or as a DM for your world, for your campaign and, and of the things that wizards has built right that these campaign worlds i mean greyhawk dragons show up late in greyhawk's creation mm -hmm. uh forgotten realms also very late in the history of toral do dragons show up um 
And so I guess in theory, you know, whenever Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk were splintered, well, it could have been that it took a while for the dragoniness to permeate or something. Mm-hmm. Um, Dragonlance, um, you know, while you have these two strong elements of Bahamut and Paladine and Takhisis as Tiamat, um, the explanations that are given in this book, because this book specifically tries to sort of address Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, Dragonlance, and Eberron. I mean, Eberron is, is the most bizarre, perhaps, of explanations here. It's sort of like, this is a second-generation derivative of the original, I guess, shard that came out of it. Like, what does that even mean? So it's not a fragment of the Foral Sword. It's some secondary... I guess they're saying the dragons rebuilt it or something. So that's how you can have a creation story with dragons, because they refashioned it. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Like... You know, at some point, it's square peg, circular hole type stuff right, going on. Right. And, and then I wonder why. Why the... Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you want to tell the story of dragons. And that's that's cool. Yeah. And I would suspect if they decided to do a giant book, the giants would have been the ones that created the world, right? It would have been <laughs> the, the... And then if you yeah. create the elemental book, it's the elemental... Uh, world that forged the material plane and then those pesky gods yeah. and the dragons that that came with them uh, you know so it's it's its own thing and i you know i'm happy to let it be as its own thing and if that's the creation myth that fits your story even if you're playing in the forgotten realms or greyhawk or dragonlance or Eberron or dark sun or planescape uh, if it fits for you, great. If not, go with your own creation myth because it doesn't have to affect, you know, the rogue making the stealth check to sneak <laughs> past the guards. The, the, all of this is irrelevant. And I thought it was really interesting. I found myself speaking to some friends, comparing this to what wizards did with beholders, where in Volos, they have this awesome lore on beholders that adds you know or takes leaps forward pushes forward the concept of how beholders work and says that they dream each other right and and they may that in a dream a beholder can imagine another beholder and that's what causes it to spring into existence and if they manage not to both destroy each other you now have one more beholder in the world as one of them will flee and that's a fascinating piece it's really neat it fits the alien world and it also doesn't mess anything up right like nothing is problematic as a result of that. It it, it just it's a neat piece of added lore. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, suddenly taking out Io, who in four E we're very clearly told is the creator of Bahamut and Tiamat, a primordial cuts Io in half, and that results in Bahamut and Tiamat, the two have two halves of Io or Asgaroth. When you just jettison that out and make it to can't work anymore. Right. Those create problems for, for your lore and your campaign. And now some of that is just that, hey, you got old players. They The old players might rub the wrong way. New players might be fine. But new players also go and seek out lore. And then they're going to go, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Why is this not yeah. at all jive with what I was told? And, yeah. So, you know, use it. Use it for what it's worth. If it works for your campaign, use it. If it doesn't, cre- make your own creation myth that um, enforces or reinforces the story you're trying to tell. But for the most part, uh, I think this is good DMing advice for a lot of players, a lot of groups. 
don't worry about creation myths. Worry about the story you're, that you're <laughs> yeah. trying to tell at the Smart. table uh, because it's like walking into the first session of a game and spending an hour describing what your world's like. You know, most players aren't there to hear what your world is like. They're there to roll dice and have their characters go through stories. Um, so that's where your focus should be. And, and maybe the more interesting part and the more useful part is this dragon sight concept. So this, this same intro then sort of gives you a, a somewhat more applicable piece called dragon sight. And here it says that dragons will occasionally develop an awareness of multiple incarnations of themselves across different worlds of the, of the material plane. And this goes back to that creation story and the idea of a first world separating out that a dragon, as it grows powerful enough, may feel echoes of itself elsewhere. And that this tends to be ancient dragons or dragons and or dragons with huge hordes, especially if the hordes include items from other worlds. Um, these dragons can begin to feel those echoes and can, in fact, go after them in a, a it sounds like that's sort of the idea is to merge with them or eat them or defeat them or something like that. You get kind of grow. It does, it's not really broken down, but somehow a dragon like a Shardalon will consume their echoes on other worlds and become a great worm that way. Yeah, it's it's sort of weird to me. Uh, this this idea, it, it, it it's like everything else I just said. It could be great if it fits the story you're trying to tell. Um but it can also be very strange because as soon as you get characters of a certain level, they're going to be able to travel between worlds mm -hmm. uh, if you allow them. And then you're going to have to explain why a Shardalon is on all these different worlds, but wait, he's not on that <laughs> world. Um, and, you know, it just, it's, and then yeah, there are items traveling across worlds. And then if you want <laughs> to separate a world and not allow travel, then, then what? Uh, is well, that I, magic I think, strong enough to overcome that? I mean, is this just a way that Wizards is explaining how they've been robbing Greyhawk for parts for decades? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's all been building up to this. Now right. we can finally reveal that the reason we put, you know, a Sararak and, you know, right. various Morgan places. And, and, right. And, you know, Temple of Elemental Evil, the Elemental Cults are in Forgotten Realms and not just in Greyhawk. And I mean, yeah, I don't know. It, it's... Um, it's an interest. I think what what I like the most of this is that I think there are some really neat idea neat mm -hmm. ideas here for how you at the DM level can choose to use this echo concept to create a really fantastic campaign. In fact, I almost wish this had been a actual five e hardback adventure that took us through this concept of defeating a dragon on various different planes mm -hmm. and maybe even its spawn. Right, so you could start at low levels and and try to figure out what is going on, what are the connections, and realize that there's this dragon that's eating its echoes on other planes. Like, that could have been a really neat campaign, and still can be for any DM that wants to come up with that. Mm -hmm. And it could explain why you have various things from other worlds as well. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I think it's just as easy for it to collide with your logic. Like they say here, that great sites of dungeons such as Sunless Citadel, Dragon Mountain, and even Tomb of Horrors can resonate across the plains because of draconic power. So the idea is that like a Serac killed a lot of dragons in rituals. So the Tomb of Horrors 
can somehow resonate across the multiverse. And boy, that just rubbed me so wrong. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm apparently old and cranky. Retroactive continuity for the win. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, and, and, you know, it's, it's really fun to, to think about these things and it's fun to come up with these things. It's, you know, really a great creative exercise to, to figure out how can we say what we're saying and make it fit here, here, and here. And, you know, that's one of the joys of creativity. Uh, it's just, it's not for everyone. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And, and I think this is an interesting attempt. Uh, it, it's, it's not my favorite iteration of it, but it, it's, it, there are things here you can use. And that's the important part is we're all DMs. This is our game. The reality is our table. So weave these cool ideas, however you see fit. Use that elegy for the first world, awesome epic poem in whatever way you wish. Uh, a really cool poem to, I think, share at your table and then have some parts of it be true. Yep. You choose which. Yep. So after that introduction, which we talked about for quite a bit, uh, <laughs> we get to chapter one, which is called character creation. And the first thing that we see is a way to make new types of dragonborn. Um, so how do you do this? Well, first of all, you're going to follow the ancestry method, uh, which separates out languages and ability scores from racial options. Uh, so rather than having to choose a, you know, ha- being told that as a dragonborn, you get plus two to this ability score and plus one to this other, uh, you can choose whichever ability score you want to raise by two and another by one, or you can pick three to raise by one, and then you pick a language. So, you know, yeah. again, going back to that more customizable ancestry method of character creation, which I'm cool with. Uh, I think it's great. Let's let's roll on. Uh, yeah. But then you get to pick or then you actually get these racial benefits. Being a dragonborn, no surprise, uh, you're going to get some dragony stuff. Uh, <laughs> they divide up the three draconic dragonborn by types, the chromatic, the gem, and then the metallic. And each one is very similar uh, to the point where I'm almost not sure why they separated them out because there's just a slightest bit of difference. Um, I think they wanted to be different than the player's handbook, which is, it's sort of chicken and the egg, right? Like you want to have a reason to not do what the player's handbook did, which is to just say dragonborn. Right but then have it be interesting enough, but you don't want it to be wildly dissimilar. And so, yeah, they're all 30 foot speed, meeting humanoids. Yeah. Uh, they all get to pick a type and that gives you some damage resistance. Yep. They all and then get your breath weapon is breath slightly weapons. different. Yep. So let's talk about each one, the chromatic dragons. So we're talking, uh, you know, the red, blue, white, mm-hmm. green, black, uh, you pick your ancestry, uh, Based on that ancestry, you get a breath weapon. Uh, the breath weapon is going to be the same for all, except for the damage type that it does. Now, they have some interesting wording here that uh, is going to elicit a bit of discussion uh, from me and possibly from Teos. So first of all, every breath weapon from a chromatic dragonborn is a line five feet wide, uh, 30 feet long. So you're going to be able to get at least two play, two targets no matter what. Yeah. Uh, and this is what they say. If, in the player's handbook, if you're a dragonborn, it's a bonus action to use your breath weapon. Here, they change it. Uh, it is not an action or a bonus action. But what they say is when you take the attack action on your turn, 
you can replace one of your attacks with this breath weapon. Uh, immediately, warning bells went off for me on two different fronts. First being, if you're a fighter, you have more attacks per action than a rogue or a wizard or whatever. So right there, it's almost stronger for those classes that have multiple attacks per uh, action. You, you with me so far? Yeah, I am. Though, isn't, is the original one an action? I think the original was an action. It was, oh, I thought it was a bonus action. Am, am yeah, I... I'm trying to find it, but I, I think D&D Beyond's been updated, so I can't. Oh, I, I have to it... go to the original source. I, but what's different is that ability to replace one of your attacks with it, right? Yes. And and that is pretty both cool and strong. Well, it's, it also doesn't say you can only use it once. It says you can replace one of your attacks. Yeah. If you get three attacks around, there's nothing oh, yeah. saying you can't breathe three times if you have mm-hmm. three three yeah. breaths, uh, unless I'm reading something incorrectly. Well, it does. Yeah, you can replace one of your attacks. Right. It, it, is that a is that a delimiter or is that yeah, a is that just a yeah. thing? So anyway, it's, and it's yeah. also fascinating because like if you're a wizard, you're you only have one attack, right? Yes. So uh, that's all you're going to be doing. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going through the D&D Beyond as well. Getting to Dragonborn. Let's see. We have... Oh, they've, they've updated it. Uh, yeah, I was trying to see if I go through the player's handbook view, will it... Uh, uh, you're trying to... Uh, tell me otherwise. But, shortcut. Uh, yeah, the like- other thing, while you're looking that up... Um, I'm all ears. Yeah. So the the other thing is they've changed the damage, mm-hmm. uh, which is a tiny bit lower. 0.5 average lower damage at the lower tier. It used to be two d six. Now it's one d ten. But after all other tiers, it'll be higher. In fact, at the high tier, you're doing five more damage, and you can now use it number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, which is way stronger. It used to be that you did it once, refresh it with a shorter long rest. Now you can use it several times in a fight, uh, or if you don't get short rests, doesn't matter. You know, you get to reuse it several times. And so overall, this is a power increase. If the Dragonborn was seen as a little weak, well, now it's got, it's made up for that. More right. damage, more often, and you can still do other attacks. That's win, win, win. Yep. And you are correct. It does say that it is an action with the player's mm-hmm. handbook Dragonborn. I could have sworn it was a bonus action, but maybe I'm thinking fourth edition, uh, which has happened yeah, once, or, once or twice in my life. Uh, so, yep. So it's a deck save, uh, eight plus your con modifier plus your proficiency bonus, 1d10 damage type, as you said, uh, increasing at fifth, 11th, and 17th level up to 4d10. And you can use it a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. Um, re- refreshing after a short or long rest is that correct just a long rest so the long old rest. one was shorter long rest and now okay. it's just once per day basically after your long rest all right cool yeah uh so i'm i don't hate it but i don't love it either um especially with that ability to use it possibly multiple times per 
round if you have mm-hmm. more than one attack with your attack action. Um, yeah, and I, I think the somewhat elephant in the room is, did we just kill the PHP version? And, and the answer is kind of yes, right? Like yeah. we kind of murderized the original version. And, and that's that whole thing of like, you know, we're not going to destroy what we had in our original core books. Yeah. Eh, you kind of just did again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can totally still play the player's handbook mm-hmm. version. Uh, but as soon as a player gets wind of this new version, it's likely what they're going to want. Uh, Cause yeah, it's just stronger. Because we're a little on time. Um, the, the, so you get the same breath weapon for gems. It's a cone for the gem dragonborn. Um, but it's the same damage and all other particulars. And then the metallic is a cone as well. Um, but it's otherwise the same. And then each one gets a little feature mm-hmm. and these in the playtest, I think were seventh level. Now they're at, at, or no, I think maybe they were earlier. They're at a different time. Maybe it was, it was either earlier or later and they changed it. So some speaks a little bit to kind of where they thought it would sit balance wise. Um, if you're a chromatic dragonborn, you have chromatic warding. Where as an action, this starts at, kicks in at fifth level, you can, uh, for one minute, become immune to the damage type that is related to your ancestry. Um, and that's just once until your long rest. The, oh yeah, it used to be third level mm-hmm. uh, the, the, in the original Unearthed Arcana version. So now it's fifth level. Um, the gem dragons at fifth level, they get the ability to fly as a bonus action. Mm-hmm. And that lasts for a minute. They also get earlier at the very beginning, they get sonic mind so they can do telepathy with other creatures. doesn't require a language, um, that is common, just some language that they know. If they know a language, you can speak to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the metallic dragonborn at fifth level, what it gets is a second breath weapon. Yeah. <laughs> this is only once per day. Uh, but. It, uh, you can again, replace one of your attacks with this exhalation in a 15 foot cone it has a similar safety C to before, and you get one of two choices, enervating breath, which incapacitates you. If you fail a con save, yeah, Ooh, that's no actions for a round, mm-hmm. um, or reactions and, or the repulsion breath, which, uh, strength save or be pushed 20 feet away and knocked prone. Um, there are some times when repulsion breath could be better, but, uh, but boy, enervating breath is, uh, that's a strong thing. And yeah, oh. incapacitated as a condition is pretty, pretty strong. Um, if you're denying actions or reactions from a monster, most don't have bonus actions. So, you know, there you go. It's, it's one thing that, is very powerful and makes the game less fun for DMs. Um, so yeah. what, uh, why don't we get, hit the pause button there and we will come back next time to talk about even more player options Ooh, from Monk and Ranger book. Yes. So with that, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening and thank you, Teos, for sharing your enjoyment of D and D with, with us all. <laughs> Same um, Sean. All right. So where can people find you on the internet? Twitter? Uh, find me at alphastream.org and on Twitter at alphastream. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. 
You can follow the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. So, Teos, what are we going to do now? Uh, let's go split our monsters into multidimensional versions. Sweet. Like <laughs> and we are.